Rewind, your year in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsinized Margaret Farrow Studio. I'm incredibly proud to be the 46th governor of the state of Wisconsin. This week, we take a look back at the year in review, the highlights and the most memorable moments in Wisconsin politics. Plus, how the hot button issues on the campaign trail will play a role in 2023. All this and more on our year in review special. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., welcome to the special Year in Review <laughs> show. We are going to count down from 10 to 1 some of the biggest stories in Wisconsin politics. So let's start with number 10, which is Milwaukee lands the Republican National Convention for 2024. Now, this was a unanimous vote by the Republican National Committee, and Milwaukee was essentially the last city standing when they were competing with Nashville because Nashville didn't pass an agreement, a framework that they needed in order to really appeal to RNC officials to land the gig. So now we actually learned of the dates of when this is going to happen, and it's going to fall on July 15th through the 18th in 2024. So, JR, a lot of talk is always about what type of impact is an RNC or any type of big national convention going to have on a battleground state? Of course, we know Republicans are trying to make inroads in the Milwaukee suburbs and trying to win over the black and Latino voters in the city. But in your view, I mean, does it really make or break uh, a candidate if they are nominated there? And does that really carry them uh, to winning a state like Wisconsin? Uh, in talking to people, it's more important to have the, the quality of candidates and the quality of campaign than it is where the convention is. Look, uh, there's no cause and effect I can find the last 20 years. Go back through the years of where conventions have been. Now, in 2020, they were virtual mostly, so let's throw those out. In 16, Hillary Clinton went to Philadelphia, I believe. She did not win Pennsylvania. In 2012, Obama was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Did not win North Carolina. In 12, uh, Republicans went to, Cal to Florida. Romney did not win Florida. Now in 08, Obama did win Colorado as it became a blue, bluer state and has now become deep blue. Um, but in 04, Bush was in New York. It had no impact in the results of New York because he went to New York City. The question is, what's the quality of the candidate? Who is the candidate? Is it going to be Donald Trump again, which he'd been through the Trump experiment a couple times in Wisconsin? He won once by 21,000 votes, lost once by 22,000 votes, or well, vice versa, sorry. I don't know if that's going to be a big deal. Now, for Republicans, though, he has a chance to sell the vision of the party in a Midwestern state kind of the blue wall Democrats had of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. That blue wall fell in 16, went back up in 20. Will it be there in 24? You can go make a pitch to uh, minority, uh, brown and black voters about your vision for them. Great. Um, also worth noting that this is the earliest Republicans will meet in the calendar for their convention since 1980. Uh, why is that important? After the 2012 loss to Obama, the then party chairman, Reince Priebus, did a post-mortem on what happened. The recommendations was move the convention to earlier in the calendar. That opens a door to the party and the candidate being able to coordinate officially on what's going on, sharing resources. In 16, they moved up to mid-July. That got pushed back in 20 because of COVID, but now they're back to early July, and that might be what's driving that, that date. 
uh, urban calendar than it was before. And you can't ignore the fact of how great this will be for the city of Milwaukee mm -hmm. after a very disappointing that many would, be, would say in 2020 when the DNC, they did land it, but of course COVID really disrupted, disrupted things. It was mainly all virtual. Uh, even us as press couldn't even get in there mm -hmm. um, to cover the event. So this is really something I know the city of Milwaukee has been really excited about and hopes to generate more revenue down the road. It can be great. Uh, I would not argue that 68 was great for Chicago having the national very, event. Okay, <laughs> very <there>. true. <laughs> let's also, I mean, not forget the possibility of Donald Trump, if he is the nominee, can he resist the temptation of being in Milwaukee, the place he blames for his loss in mm -hmm. 2016 in Wisconsin, where he claimed falsely there was a vote dump in the middle of the night. That was what happened. They just finished counting votes. If he's not the nominee, can he resist, I don't know, having a rally in Waukesha the same time that the convention, and these are all, all like just yeah. throwing things out there, but the quality of the candidate, you know, who's it going to be is more important to me and the people I talk to than where you have your convention. And speaking of elections, that leads us right into number nine, which is the 2020 election fallout. Of course, it is going to soon be 2023, but last year uh, in 2020 or 2022, excuse me, there was still a lot of people consumed with the 2020 election. And it was essentially the rise and fall of the Michael Gableman election investigation, which was launched by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. So after 14 months, Voss fired Gableman on August 12th after he produced no evidence of widespread voter fraud and he made calls for decertifying the 2020 election. This also occurred uh, when American Oversight, before it was over, they filed multiple lawsuits seeking records related to Gableman's probe because us in the media and a lot of people didn't know what, what Gableman was doing on his, on his time. Of course, the whole thing was funded by taxpayers. And so there was a lot of lingering questions. We had a lot of documents produced. Uh, there were some reports that we haven't seen before. And it kind of just revealed that even the first few months after Gablin was hired, he was still getting his ducks in a row. He was buying office furniture. He was still trying to find a location. So during the first few months, he didn't do a lot of investigating. But going back to those lawsuits, at times when Gableman was in court, uh, he got a little testy with the Dane County Judge Frank Remington because he was arguing that he didn't want to talk about certain things. So let's just take a listen, kind of looking back at some of the highlights of Gableman in court. This is my courtroom. Right. You had a courtroom in Burnett County. I did. You had a courtroom in the East Wing of the State Capitol. I do not need to tell you what, how I expect you to control yourself and the behavior that I expect of a witness on this stand. You have a right to conduct and control your courtroom, Judge but you don't have a right to act as an advocate for one party over the other. I want a personal counsel if you are putting jail on the table. I want a personal, I want an attorney to represent me personally. Do you intend to answer any of my other questions, Mr. I Chairman? invoke the rights the Honorable Judge Revington just recited. What rights are those, Mr. Gableman? Is it the Fifth Amendment right to re uh, not answer questions? It's the right to silence guaranteed to me under the United States Constitution, Judge Remington, the state of Wisconsin Constitution, and all cases interpreting the same. So throughout the year, we also saw Voss kind of change his tone too. Of course, he was supportive of Gableman, but the relationship really started to get sour after he saw Gableman's first interim report. I believe it was around March. He was going to testify before the Assembly Elections Committee. Voss got the report, but what he gave 
uh, to him, Gableman, uh, did not include anything about decertification. Then he went public in front of the committee hearing saying, you know, lawmakers should look for a pathway to decertification. Of course, we should note there is no legal pathway. It is an impossible effort to decertify the 2020 election. Yet Gableman said there was. So that didn't start out too well. And then Boss's primary opponent, Adam Steen, was backed by Gableman. Of course, former President Donald Trump also backed him. So there was a rocky relationship for a very long time until Voss ultimately, shortly after the primary, ended this contract and fired Gableman. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of buildup, but then we kind of saw Voss kind of change his tone um, on the whole election conspiracy theories. I'm yet to have anybody point out to me the upside of Robin Voss initiating this review of the 2020 election in the first place. Remember, go back to uh, late 2020, we had the first Campaigns Elections Committee hearing about the election in 2020 where we had people come testify about what they saw or heard or thought they saw and heard. Then Voss appointed Janelle Branchen to lead that committee in early 21, late 20 going into the 21 session. That wasn't the best move, it turns out. Janelle Branchen used that committee as a launching pad for various conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, especially voter rolls, where people would come and testify that, oh, this looks wrong. Then we'd find out things like, well, there were 30 people who registered from that address because it's part of a college campus, right? Stuff like that was going on. Um, into the hiring of Gabe member, this was announced in 21, right in the eve, or at the GOP state convention. Right before the convention, Donald Trump had a statement ripping fucking lawmakers that they were not doing enough. It built up through, it was going to be done in late fall of 21 to set the stage for these bills to be done in 22. Nothing got done on time. Nothing got done on budget. Nothing. I mean, granted, Gableman didn't spend more than he was allocated for the investigation, but the lawsuits that grew out of it produced legal bills. Now. We may have, not have taxpayers reimburse the attorneys for American oversight for the lawsuits because they're on appeal. But we've already paid out the door thousands and thousands of dollars for attorneys who've defended Gableman, defended Robin Voss in these lawsuits. This did not put their 2020 thing to rest. It only opened the door to more conspiracy theories, to Trump complaining more about what happened, to Trump pressuring Robin Voss more about what happened, to Robin Voss testifying before a House committee virtually. I went at, nothing came out of this that put it to rest. We ended up with what? A bill for taxpayers and Robin Voss having to go through all these hoops for what? Um, now going forward, the question is, what else is gonna happen? Will there be anything else come out of this? Will there be election bills in the 23-24 session? Um, I know you talked to Devin Lemonhue, who talked about military voters, for example. That's absentee ballots. Like that's a, a thing he wants now to address. What else are they gonna do? And you know, that's what was, I was gonna bring up too. I mean, I spoke to Lemahue and I said, what about all those GOP election bills um, that you know Governor Evers vetoed? Are you planning to reintroduce those? And he sees it as, what's the point? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, we know that they're ultimately gonna get it vetoed again. Wild, why wild up everyone all, all over again? And it, so it appeared to me that he's ready to move on. We've seen Voss spoke, speak uh, openly about this, that he's ready to move on and really find things that they believe they can agree with the governor on to make any changes. Of course, that doesn't happen every session. I think they'll still pass their priorities, even if they are doomed for a veto. This happens all the time. But will we see something on military voting? That is something I think we will both be watching for next legislative session. Uh, yeah, Republicans seem more intent to kind of file lawsuits to try and pressure 
the Elections Commission to pass administrative rules. Remember, that gives them the ability to suspend those rules, to, to nix them. But in terms of like what could he get done legally, I mean, we all have talked about how with absentee voting, the surge of it, if you can start processing them the day before, to just get things you know, queued up, it would make the process easier. You wouldn't have Milwaukee finishing things at one o'clock in the morning and what kind of what, whatnot. The issue is though, you now have a segment of the GOP base that's convinced if you do that, you're open to a fraud, right? So there was a bill early in the 22 session that actually included provisions on drop boxes and early processing absentee ballots. Somebody leaked that to a conservative media outlet that then started ripping Robin Voss over the bill and blew it up. I mean, there's just a certain part of the GOP base will never placate, it seems like, about unless Donald Trump fades away and those issues fade away. I don't sure it can happen anytime soon, though. All right. Now let's go on to topic number eight, which is election lawsuits. <laughs> now, there was plenty of lawsuits uh, that covered a wine raging aspects that confused a lot of voters, I will say, because a lot of these rulings occurred right before an election and there was a lot of last minute changes. So just to name a few of the challenges, I mean, we were looking at the use of absentee ballot drop boxes, curing ballots, which is filling in missing address information or like a zip code or the WI for Wisconsin, and restrictions on who can return a ballot. So it was almost just a whirlwind of lawsuits that we saw that was some, from frustrations of 2020 that they were trying to resolve right before the midterms. And yes, there was some changes, big ruling, no absentee ballot drop boxes, only you yourself, the voter, can return your ballot in person or put it in your mailbox. But then you got to go back to the whole issue of uh, Disability Rights Wisconsin as an organization here. And they vowed, you know, there's some people who are incapable of filling out their own ballot and putting in their own mailbox. So that was also a reversal and they made the, you know, the decision more clear. So Looks like we have rules for now, but will there be more, more challenges in the future? Kind of remains to be seen. Uh, Republicans found more success, like I said, going to Waukesha County Court, right. filing these challenges, getting a conservative Supreme Court to uphold the Waukesha County ruling. The question is how much impact did we have? Absentee voting dropped off significantly from 2020 to 2022. Um, now, it's still elevated from 2018, but we've also gotten much better at casting absentee ballots. One of the problems in 2020, I'm sorry, was people having to have their ballots cured because they had missing information from a witness, like they left off the zip code or part of the street address. Talking to the clerks from Madison, Milwaukee though, before the November election, a couple weeks out, they had 150 ballots that were out, sent back to the voter to be fixed in both cities. That's not a lot. Now, you still wanna can argue about whether you're disenfranchising somebody because they left off piece X or whatnot. But that said, there weren't the problems like we saw in 20, where the audit bureau came out that report showing the, the thousands of ballots of what they sampled that were missing some piece. Now, I can't remember the exact breakdown of what each thing was, it was missing, but uh, we do know we've gotten better at this, so that's not as important, the curing piece. The drop boxes, we didn't have any people going to drop boxes. COVID has started to kind of fade for, as a concern for a lot of people. They voted more in person. They returned their ballots in person to the clerk's office, those kinds of things. Maybe these lawsuits haven't had a huge impact, more like around the edges type impact of what happened in 2022. And a lot of the lawsuits, of course, were related to absentee mm -hmm. ballots and the rules around them. Um, one thing that possibly that we could see with drop boxes is maybe 
Democrats, if they do pick up a seat on the state Supreme Court, is this an issue they bring back to the court and say, we want to you know, retry this um, with more of a liberal leaning uh, justices. But that kind of also remains to be seen because we have to get through that election yes. first. All right, number seven is JR's favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number seven is redistricting, of course, because we have new maps that were enacted this year. So let's look back to April. The Wisconsin Supreme Court adopted the Republican-authored maps uh, from the state legislature, which handed the Republicans a victory just weeks after initially approving maps drawn by Governor Tony Evers. Now, the issue could be re revisited by the co high court. That's what I just said about, you know, absentee ballot drop boxes, but that all uh, depends on the outcome of the 2023 race that will decide the ideological, excuse me, I can't speak today, ideological balance of the court. Now, I do want to take a listen of the arguments in court because it was Brian Hagedorn that brought up some questions about why not adopt Governor Evers' maps, which he originally ruled in favor for. And then we're also going to hear from an attorney kind of defending that. So let's take a, a listen back to some of the arguments in court. If, if we were going to prioritize factors that are not legally required, like more population equality or more compactness, which of course are constitutional values, but they're not they're constitutionally commendable choices, but they're not constitutional prerequisites in order for them. You know, once you meet a certain, certain amount of compactness, that's enough. Once you meet a certain amount of equality, that's enough. And I don't see an argument that the governor's maps violate those or others, other maps violate those. So I'm having a hard time understanding um, why we would now use that standard when that isn't what we told the parties. If we told the parties we wanted you to submit maps that have perfect quality population, like the congressional districts, we should have said so, but we didn't say so. We, we said something quite, quite different. And I, I don't want to be uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy here. The legislature's position is that the governor and block plans are illegal. They violate the United States Constitution because they are racial gerrymanders. Even under state law, there are problems with the governor and block plans and Bewley plans as well. And the first is population equality. It is why we are here. And the governor's plan does not, cannot possibly be described as achieving, a, 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 approaching as close of an exact, of population exactness as possible. So, JR, there's no doubt that the new maps highly benefited Republicans even more when it came to legislative and congressional districts because they you know, kind of skewed them to their favor, um, and it worked. Now, statewide elections is a completely different animal, I guess you can say, but, you know, it, it is going to help them, and it's going to help them for the next 10 years. Um, but, you know, there could be additional challenges down the road, uh, but as of right now, it's locked in. Well, the foundation of these maps was a state Supreme Court ruling they had to take a least change approach to what Republicans passed in 2011. Those maps locked in a Republican majority for a decade. Now going for the question is, what's next? So first, what happened in November, look at what happened in the governor's race. Tony Evers won Wisconsin statewide by 3.4 percentage points. He won 39 assembly districts. That shows you the durability of those maps. Um, now, quality of candidate matters at the local level, funding, but looking at a kind of one-on-one -on -one dynamic between Evers and Michaels, Evers having a bit of an advantage financially, you see how well these maps do for Republicans because even as he won by that margin, we picked up that many seats. Um, wasn't very good in the Senate either. I think 13 seats he won in the Senate. Um, those are good maps for Republicans. Going forward, if we go back to the state Supreme Court, will be an argument of one, 
is a partisan gerrymander, which is, and, you know, people argue is unconstitutional. And two, the foundation of a least change approach was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not gonna argue what you might raise before a reconstituted Supreme Court, but to get that 4-3 liberal bent, you could go there. Out in the wings is what's happened to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the big issue, remember the maps that Evers drew that were adopted and thrown out, was that Evers went for more black districts, the Republicans went with fewer black districts. The argument though was that Evers drew those districts solely based on race. He went to the max to find a way to get to 50% in seven assembly districts versus the six we have now with very, or had before, with various levels of black majority voters in those districts. The Republican ones dropped down to five majority black districts, but they argue we did not consider race at all in drawing them. It's just how the, the cookie crumbled, that's what we got. The U.S. Supreme Court has basically been reworking the Voting Rights Act, which had kind of guaranteed you know, certain uh, representation for minority populations if you had a significant enough concentration in various areas. That may be going out the door with this conservative U.S. Supreme Court majority, so that might be an issue going forward. But it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out because it could come back later on to arguments about what we do with our maps if things change with the state Supreme Court. All right, let's get on to number six, which is criminal justice and public safety. There was no doubt that the issue played a major role in the governor's race and U.S. Senate. A lot of Republicans were upset of the huge uptick in crime, and they blamed Democrats for it because you got a Democratic governor. Um, what is he doing about it? I know Attorney General Josh Call faced some criticism about it. Now, their argument is that they couldn't pass their plans. It was, I believe, Attorney General Josh Call was uh, called the Safer Communities Act. Uh, Democrats, or they, they tried to get it through the legislature, um, didn't work. So this was a real sticking point. And it all happened around the time when there was a lot of criticism over the parole commission because the former, now former parole commissioner, chair John Tate resigned at Governor Tony Evers' request less than a month after Evers intervened about a decision that he made related to a West Allis man who was convicted of a brutal crime. So this kind of started the whole discussion and it was, this happened right before the primary. We had uh, Rebecca Clayfish uh, coming out saying that she would fire um, the parole commissioner if she was elected. And she was hoping that would kind of rile up her base. Then it, the issues of bail reforms were still carrying over and about funding for police and public safety. So this was a huge issue that was widely talked about. And parole became a very contentious issue, especially for Tim Michaels after the primary because he also basically accused Evers of releasing multiple violent uh, felons uh, back into communities. Now, there are some rules when it comes to that. It is up to the parole commission, not Governor Evers, who makes these decisions. And a lot of people are up for parole regardless because of a state law that was passed many, many years ago. So they fall within this threshold that you essentially have to let them go after multiple reviews that they've shown that they, you know, don't pose a threat to the community. There's a lot of, you know, bullet points and check marks that they have to go through. So I guess my, you know, initial thought of looking back on this is that did it work? I mean, I could say that maybe it worked for Senator Ron Johnson because of the negative ads that he portrayed Mandela Barnes as too a dangerous liberal and see that crime is going up. He tried to make that connection. Uh, but for you know, Tim Michaels, it didn't work so well. And he did focus on a lot of it um, throughout his campaign. I mean, a year ago, we talked about looking forward to the governor's race. I mean, the issues that seem to be problems for Evers are going to be unemployment, Right, the debacle with filling right. claims from the COVID-19 pandemic. 
I don't remember a single ad, Emily, talking about no. that issue. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden was going to be a problem. And, you know, that was definitely something that weighed on Democrats a bit. And then Kenosha and how we re uh, handled that whole thing there. Kenosha was a bit of an issue, but we didn't see parole being a big deal a year ago. That changed in part because that story about that release kind of opened the door. There was reporting by Wisconsin right now about the various people who've been released, hundreds of people on parole. That became the dominant issue in ads that I saw. And then you had Mandela Barnes win the nomination for U.S. Senate where he was on camera saying the phrase defund the police, on camera saying releasing prisoners is sexy, on, and holding a t-shirt saying abolish ICE. You know, you can debate the issue of race and how it played into this race uh, for U.S. Senate. Uh, the first black nominee from Wisconsin for U.S. Senate ever uh, for a major party. But the, he was the perfect candidate for Ron Johnson to, to use that issue because of the things he said. Take other things out of the equation, what he had said on camera, his positions. He is a progressive on crime. And I'm not bashing that at all, just saying that's a fact. Barnes is a liberal, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but that became the perfect foil for Johnson, the campaign you want to run about crime in the environment that we're in. People are concerned about crime. Look at the um, polls from Marquette. We saw inflation. We saw crime. They were major issues for people. And it was a, a winning campaign for Ron Johnson, in part because of that message that he used. Right, and he was able to define Mandela Barnes because he knew once he, basically all the other Senate Democrats that were running, uh, clear the field for him, he knew who his opponent was. So he had that time to start preparing all of those ads of him saying, you know, clips of him saying exactly what you just said, and rolled them out fairly quickly. So it was difficult for the Barnes campaign to combat that because he wasn't really able to define himself before that. Um, we also saw a lot of crime bills. There was a crime package that Republicans passed. Governor Evers didn't uh, really care that much about it, um, but that was also another highlight of how this all kind of started. Um, started with crime bills, then the parole, uh, bail reform like from last year from the Waukesha uh, tragedy that occurred. So it was just all these issues rolled into one, um, and you explained it pretty well of kind of who it worked for and who it didn't. Um, speaking of issues that voters most cared about, that leads us right into topic number five, with the drum roll, which is abortion. I mean, Jer, we have talked on this show so many times about the major impact that it had on voters, on driving certain voters out. And even just think about this, the conversations we had leading up to the midterm, right after Roe v. Wade was overturned, we were both a little uncertain whether or not the energy, the rallies, the everything, the frustrations that some voters had about that decision, would that energy carry over all the way into November? I mean, it, it still was an issue. So it did prove to be uh, successful to, for Democrats because we saw Evers and uh, Attorney General Josh Call really talk about this uh, constantly on the campaign trail. Of course, then we had, I believe it was like four or five days after Roe v. Wade is overturned, Call filed a lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's 1849 criminal abortion ban. As of right now, there's a debate in the state legislature whether Republicans maybe might draft a bill to add exceptions for rape and incest. That's something we can look forward to possibly seeing in the next legislative session, but there's very mixed caucus on whether they would act. But it all really just depends on when this lawsuit is going to, I guess, have be resolved, I should say. Call said it's going to be several more months. He even told me it could possibly go well into 2024. So kind of just a wait and see approach. But also, will lawmakers have enough consensus in the Assembly and the Senate to do something? I know Lemmick you when I asked him, they almost said they don't even want to touch the issue with a 10-foot pole because they don't want to put their members in that situation or on the record 
of whether or not they want to add exceptions or any other changes. So that kind of is the bu is yeah. the is the big bubble of how well, abortion played out. Remember the, this the year. draft ruling leaked in late spring, and the question was, would that passion that outrage mm -hmm. came last until November? I think it made an observation in the show that you know, everything I say here is basically my synthesis of my conversations with sources, and I kept hearing from Republicans saying, you know, this thing's going to dissipate by fall. It's going to be all about crime and inflation. And I noted that most of the time I hear that from men. No, no offense to men, but that was their view, that the other things would take over. My female sources kept saying, eh, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. A lot of Democrats I talked to said, I know these polls from Marquette show that inflation and crime are more important, are very, more very concerned people than abortion. That's not important, JR. It's who abortion moves. And they were right. Yeah, I mean, inflation is a bigger concern to people overall than abortion. But if you move a few points in the middle from the Republican side to the Democratic side, it swings things. And it wasn't just abortion, right? In the governor's race, it was abortion plus uh, the sexual harassment suits against Tim Michael's company plus the Donald Trump endorsement. It was a trifecta. Uh, Ron Johnson survived the abortion issue, but what was his answer? I'm going to try and lobby lawmakers to have a statewide referendum and sell it once and for all. Very different answer than Tim Michael saying, the 1849 ban matches my personal view about what should happen in this world. So there's that. And the issue is not dead. We have a Supreme Court race this spring. We have a special election for the state senate this spring. Democrats, I guarantee you, will push that issue again in both of those races. Republicans, you mentioned, want to take it off the table. But how do you take it off the table? Robin Voss's answer, um, uh, add exceptions for rape and incest, but require a police report to be filed to qualify for the exception. I don't see any Democrat voting for that bill if it does come to the floor. And as you mentioned, I don't know the Republicans, enough Republicans who would vote on their own to add exceptions to the law because it reflects their view. Mm -hmm. Right? That's their view about abortion. That's their position. I don't know that bill gets to the floor, it gets to the governor's desk. I had a Republican tell me, we need to put a bill on Evers' desk that he's embarrassed not to sign to take it off the table. I don't know talking to people that's going to happen between now and, and April when the election's held. Right, and we did see the issue of abortion play differently in other states too. I think it was almost just what's at stake in your state. Yes, of course, inflation was impacting everyone. It still is. I mean, the prices of eggs right now, I'm pretty, it's like eight, eight bucks the <laughs> other day. I mean, it's it's still there, but who do you blame for that, right? I think Tim Michaels tried to blame Evers for that. I know I saw a lot of explainer stories we put out there too, like who is the individual? Is it one individual? Not really. I mean, it's multiple factors, but I think just abortion just played to more individuals depending on where you live. I mean, if you lived in a state like Illinois where they immediately acted, maybe that didn't drive you out. Also, it's been a blue state forever, mm -hmm. right? So I felt talking to a lot of you know, voters in general, they just felt that their vote mattered much more uh, during this election when it came to that issue. All right, number four, we're getting down there, JR, is the primaries. I mean, you can't ignore all of the action that led up to the primaries. I mean, we, we started earlier in the show talking about the U.S. Senate um, field for Democrats just evaporated within a matter of days, mm -hmm. and everyone cleared the fear field for Mandela Barnes. Now, we can get into that of whether that hurt or helped him. I think a lot of the sources that we were talking to says that wasn't really a good idea for him not to have a competitive primary, and no one took shots at him. Also, 
leading up to the primary, we had a visit from former President Donald Trump, who endorsed Tim Michaels and held a huge rally in Rebecca Clayfish's backyard in Waukesha. That really helped carry Tim Michaels to beat a very competitive primary. A lot of people for a long time, before even Michaels was in the race, I mean, Rebecca Clayfish had a clear path forward. A lot of people predicted that she would. Then the field got a little bit more crowded. And, I mean, I mean, you got to give credit to Michaels for coming out on top of that. And but yes, Trump helped him through the primary, but it also hurt him later on. He didn't even say the word Trump once, I want to say, after the primary. They even tried to remove the endorsement from the website. That was a whole ordeal. And then it was back on the website. And I know, um, you know, you've talked to some voters, too, who also went to the ballot box and, you know, wanted uh, they voted Evers and then voted Ron Johnson. So it was just this bizarre outcome, but just specifically on the primaries, there was a lot of lead up. Um, before we get into the details uh, about more of this, JR, I just want to uh, kind of uh, play a snippet from Trump in Waukesha because it wasn't just about Michaels. It was also, uh, in a sense, bashing Assembly Speaker Robin Voss because of how many times they were butting heads about the election. So let's take a listen. Right here in Wisconsin, we have some Critically important elections coming up, starting with the primaries this Tuesday, August 9th. Got to get out. You got to vote. You have the opportunity to vote for true conservative warriors, starting with the next governor of Wisconsin, Tim Michaels. Tim's opponent in the primary is Rebecca Clayfish, a career politician and a Political insider. I've known her for a long time. She's the hand-picked candidate of the failed establishment, the rhinos, and the Washington Swamp. Tim Michaels will win the primary. He'll win it easily. And in November, he's going to win the elections. This is the year we're going to take back the House. We're going to take back the Senate. And we're going to take back America. Also leading up to the primary, worth noting that there was no endorsement at the state Republican convention. Uh, a lot of people thought that was going to help the candidate kind of come out of the crowded field, and no one got it. So there was a lot of action leading up uh, before the August primary. Take the Republican uh, primary first for governor. That convention, missing that vote, really hurt Rebecca Clayfish. Mm -hmm. She was the establishment candidate. Now, she tried to run like an outsider, but it's hard to do when you're basically been a creature of Madison for eight years and were the party favorite. She got the majority of the vote, but not that threshold to get there. Remember the whole rigmarole of like Kevin Nicholson saying, we shouldn't vote for, there should be no endorsement. No endorsement yeah. And the Michaels approach of, you know, we're not looking, we're not, we're not trying to get the endorsement, anything like that. They wanted to hold her below that threshold because if you got the endorsement of the party, it opened the door to the party, you getting like, when they did their turn on the vote calls, they would promote you access their fundraising list, it had been a big boost, so there was that. Um, also worth noting though, speaking of Republican primaries, that their endorsed candidate, state treasurer race, didn't win <laughs> the primary. John Liber did, and now Liber's gonna be state treasurer. That's a side story. In the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate, it was fascinating because nobody threw a punch at Mandela Barnes. And, you know, you can go back and play armchair quarterback of if that would have helped him not, you know, to be toughened up in the primary. But the challenge was for all of those Democrats, if you threw a punch, one, it wasn't geared to help you. If, let's just play, if Alex Lazary criticized Mandela Barnes, would he benefit directly? Or might Tom Nelson or Sarah Galuski benefit, right? There was no guaranteed return for that. 
You also had challenge of going after the first uh, black candidate for U.S. Senate was serious uh, candidate in Wisconsin, had a chance to win. Um, how would that look with the base if you went after him? And thirdly, none of the attacks that would work in a general election work in a primary for Democrats. They're not as upset about a progressive on criminal justice issues, right? They are like, hey, that's what we want a uh, social justice type candidate. That was in their wheelhouse. So I know people talk about, oh, the Democrats messed up and not going after Barnes, but it's like, on what? What would they really attack him on that would be successful for them uh, that helped him to win? So it was surprising in some ways the way that field collapsed so quickly in one week in July, but also they knew there's no path to victory. Um, and it helped preserve their options going forward. I'm pretty sure Sarah Galuska will run for something again down the road. Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, um, but she'll run for something again down the road. Lazary, you know, possible. Nelson, possible, but uh, that helped them. I also want to talk about the Robin Voss, Adam Steen primary because while they didn't get much attention, let's not forget that Robin Voss won that primary by a couple hundred votes. Like it was way closer than it's supposed to be. I remember like the week leading up to the, that I primary. Say it was 109. <laughs> the week up that primary, yeah. I was told if it's 55 45, it's close. It was way closer than 55 45. Um, now, Steen continued on that path, um, mounted the writing campaign. As we now know, writing campaigns do not work in Wisconsin, no different than it was before, very hard to do. But there was fallout from that because Janelle Branchin backed Robin Voss's primary opponent. Chuck Wickers backed Robin Voss's primary opponent. They're not going to be committee chairs in the 23-24 session. Now, that's not the only problems that they have with Robin. Janelle crossed paths with them on various things, but there's fallout from that primary that continues through the next session uh, because of choices people made. All right, and number three going down the line is the massive budget surplus, or you could call unprecedented, mm -hmm. and once in a lifetime, I believe Lemahue called it on a panel a few weeks ago. So when I want to say the first projections were around 4.3, and then that dramatically changed until about recently, now the state surplus is sitting at 6.6. .6. Now, of course, it is projected, mm -hmm. but this gives lawmakers and the governor a real opportunity to sit in a room, which they have. Um, I believe Governor Evers is meeting with Voss this week. He met with Lemahue last week, is what he told me in, uh, in our uh, end of the year interview. So what are they gonna agree on? Um, the one thing we keep hearing over and over again is let's cut taxes. But by how much and who benefits remains a huge sticking point that we'll see if they can find some type of compromise. Governor Tony Ebers said, well, Republicans, uh, they put in the past two state budgets that I signed tax cuts for middle income individuals and earners and families. Um, but Robin Voss wants to do significantly more than that. We're hearing Lemmyhue wants to do a flat tax, which Evers has said to me, and I believe to you as well as many reporters, that he's probably gonna veto that if it ever reaches his desk. So there's all these dueling proposals of where to cut and what to cut and who benefits, but finding an agreement, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's unprecedented in part because of what's happened. So look, what drove this surplus was a combination of COVID money, federal money being pumped in the oh, system, yeah. Inflation, which is bad for consumers, but great for sales tax collections because if things cost more to buy, you get more sales tax off those collections, and we didn't spend the money. So remember, we have gotten a series of good projections from the Fiscal Bureau. They do these projections every January, um, and they do them again in May of budget years to help give lawmakers and governors the best picture of what's going on. And they've had positive news every time. But in May of 21, we got unprecedented positive news, right? The 
COVID money that was pumped in the system has drove things through the roof. They didn't spend it all. As it kept building up, Republicans rebuffed overtures from Evers to send rebate checks, to come into special session, do some kind of tax cut, saying, no, 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 that's an election year gimmick. We want to work with the next session and hopefully a Republican governor to do transformational tax reform. Well, they didn't get that. They got Evers again. So what can they get done? Um, the flat tax is about doing away with the top income tax bracket of 7.65%. Remember, there are a lot of people in business who file their taxes not as a corporation but as an LLC, which means you file personal income tax returns with your business income as your personal income. They argue that hurts our tax competitiveness. Other states are going to flat taxes. Iowa has a graduated system that's going to flat tax. Illinois has had a flat tax. They're arguing that puts us on an island and is, makes us less competitive. It also though, benefits the wealthy disproportionately. Now, you can find ways to craft a flat tax to make sure everybody gets a tax cut, like Lemon Hughes said. Mm -hmm. The bottom rate is 3.54%. I think he's talking about 3.5 as his target number. You can also do increases to the standard deduction mm -hmm. to offset all kinds of things. But it doesn't change the fact that you raise the lower that rate on income above $370,000 for a married couple filing jointly, you're going to impact disproportionately wealthier people. Um, Evers wants 10% reduction. What he basically proposed in the campaign trail, targeting the lower brackets again. Robbins saying, Voss is saying, we've done that before. It's time to attack the other brackets. I don't know what's going to get done with those things, but there's a lot of money to spend. Not as much as we think, though, sometimes, because there's $6.6 .6 projected into this biennium. There's $1.5 billion revenue growth projected the two-year period. Okay, that gives you north of $8 billion. Don't forget the projections. We have, we're teetering on the edge of recession constantly, it seems like. Right. Uh, as somebody who's looked at homes recently, you know what mortgage <laughs> rates look like these <laughs> exactly days. exactly what they look like, <laughs> yeah. What's the Fed gonna do to try and tamp down inflation? Could that send us into a recession? I mean, there are all kinds of like unknowns. With the budget, there's $3.6 in new spending requests above current levels for state agencies. However, uh, Department of Health Services wants to expand Medicaid through uh, the Affordable Care Act. That would generate savings about $1.5 billion in this budget. If you don't do it, which Republicans have rejected twice, right, you take that 8.1, take 1.5 off of that. Now there's still a lot of money to spend. But Robin Voss wants a minimum of $3.4 billion in tax cuts. Okay, take that off. Governor Evers wants $2 plus billion in new spending for schools alone. The math gets real tough real easily, depending on what your priorities are. You look at those figures. And we've known from Republicans that they always want to be fiscally responsible. Mm -hmm. That's why they, well, one of their arguments, they didn't want to touch the surplus uh, last year. Of course, A, I think we both know because of it's an election yep. year, they don't want to do anything dramatic, but also because they talked about inflation. They said there could be something that happens and we want to dip into this and have those savings. So that's something that we're going to be watching for of just how much, like you explained, are they willing to spend and how much they still just want to keep in the reserves. So I know I'm kind of ancient sometimes but I'm one of the few people left who's been through real budget troubles, okay? Like in 08, 09, 09, 10, we actually had like things drop, like sales tax collections dropped because of the fallout of the housing crisis, right? I was here in 2001, post 9-11, when all of a sudden we had a deficit we had to deal with. Most lawmakers have not dealt with bad news when it comes to finances. At some point, the bill's gonna come due, and we have a budget that is built on driving down property taxes by buying down the levies, put money into schools, put money into tech colleges. 
if we ever hit a real true rough spot and these monies go away, we are in big, big trouble. Oh, thanks for the positivity, <laughs> JR. All right. Okay. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Let's move on to number two. Uh, probably no surprise here, but we want to highlight some of the big winners mm -hmm. from the midterm elections. So number two is Ron Johnson elected to a third term. There's no doubt that a lot of people thought Ron Johnson was going to do much better based on the polls, based on the discussions that we were talking to sources. And Mandela Barnes was much closer uh, with the threshold um, that you could see right here on the graphic. Ron Johnson, it's about a one percentage point difference. Um, so, I mean, you gotta, gotta give him kudos because a lot of people thought he was dead in the water. We saw a lot of money not coming back into Wisconsin that was pulled out. Um, and, you know, some national groups kind of just lost faith in this race, but um, much closer than we thought. And you gotta give Ron Johnson credit um, for, of course, saying, you can't forget it was a few I think leading up before his decision, he initially promised that he wasn't going to run for a third term. So that was a whole debacle. And then he eventually did. Um, so now, I mean, we are we're here for he's here for the next six years. And uh, it was a quite a contentious race because we talked about the issues. Crime was on the ballot, um, abortion a little bit. Uh, Mandela Barnes thought that was really going to help carry him uh, in crime. Uh, education was thrown in there, too. But it, it was really um, uh, a big victory for Ron Johnson to come on top of this. Yeah, I mean, look, he's been like on the most in danger list for a long time. Right, he was, he was so unpopular. Yeah, he was yeah. supposed to lose in 2016. Mm -hmm. He shocked the political world by winning re-election then. He wasn't gonna run for election. Out of the gate, his first ad, which was unique, was to say, this is why I changed my mind and broke my pledge to you. Mm -hmm. Total Ron Johnson. That is Ron Johnson to a T. He, he wants to talk about what he wants to talk about and give the message, this is why I'm doing this, because things are, are such at high stakes right now in this country. Now, why do you do better? Talking to Republicans, they'll say, look, we're a purple state, 50-50. We never expected a blowout. But the national conversation about Wisconsin like dropped off dramatically the last month. Mm -hmm. Johnson did a great job, him and his allies, of defining Mandela Barnes in that month after the primary as dangerous, radical, different. Now, again, those are some loaded words to certain people when you talk to them about that, but it worked. You know, they put a definition on Mandela Barnes as somebody you couldn't trust. He addressed the abortion issue somewhat effectively, right, with, you know, this is better than Tim Michaels did at least. It sets him up now to be in there for six years, but what's he able to do? Now, Ron Johnson had hoped to have a flip to control of the Senate and have a chairmanship and be able to then run investigation after investigation to Hunter Biden, the FBI, you know, pick his uh, preferred punching bag right now. That didn't happen. He has to instead rely on the House Republicans to run his investigations for him, to feed them, ask them to do stuff, to watch what they're doing. He can write letters. He can still raise complaints. Um, but he's not got that power of the gavel. In 24, it's a much better map for Republicans. Uh, we'll see how they do then. But if they can flip control then, then he may get the gavel back to do some stuff. But for the meantime, he ends up being somebody's going to be a, a noisy gong about D.C. Like, for example, the debate about the uh, omnibus spending bill, $1.7 trillion. He proposed an amendment to strip out earmarks, right? But he didn't do anything to stop the train, right? So there's this, what's Ron Johnson to do in this kind of environment? Is he gonna be a fly in the ointment? Are you just gonna kind of complain a lot? Or is he gonna be able to be effective and navigate this new dynamic in Congress and this US Senate? Remains to be seen hmm? with a new term. All right, let's go to number one. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Evers is re-elected. Of course, um, he went up against Tim Michaels and he 
you really won. <laughs> I mean, over three percentage points, um, not that much of a close race. Of course, we had the MU poll kind of really shifting. Michaels was gaining traction. But, I mean, ultimately, the issues really helped uh, Tony Evers really carry him to victory here. Uh, before we dive into recapping this race, let's hear from Tony Evers himself on election night, kind of basically saying, well, I know I'm boring, and guess what? Boring works. So let's take a listen. I'm incredibly proud to be the 46th governor of the state of Wisconsin, and I'm jazz as hell to tell you that on January 3rd, 2023, I will still be the 46th governor of the great state of Wisconsin. And I made a promise to the people of Wisconsin that I would never make promises I couldn't keep and that I always work for you. That's who I am, folks, and that's what I've always been. Some people call it boring, but you know what, Wisconsin, as it turns out, boring wins. You've never stopped showing up. You never stopped believing in the work we could do. You've never stopped fighting for the future we want to build for the state and for our kids. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We're going to polka tonight and get back to work tomorrow. Thank you, Wisconsin. We love you. So they heard Governor Evers kind of have some of his wingers. Um, like I said, I'm a boring guy, boring works. Um, so he really uh, overcame uh, some of the spending that Michaels said that he was going to put in the race. And then we saw Michaels not spend so much in the race. Uh, Evers, I mean, you can't, you got to give him credit too of how much money he had. He outspent Michaels. Um, he had uh, the backing of the state Democratic Party, who was a huge powerhouse of fundraising. He was, you know, I, you turn on TVs, ads left and right. Um, and also, you know, it was quote unquote devastating for Michaels because everyone around him that we later found out after the election was telling him you're going to win. Uh, start getting your admin together. Uh, there was individuals like Governor Tommy Thompson, Rince Priebus, uh, all people saying, you know, get ready. You know, we think you're going to ride this red wave. And that's what I think him and his campaign kind of banked on. Uh, of course, when you have people around you saying you got this man, um, you're going to win. It just wasn't what happened here in Wisconsin. We are a purple state. We had this big split ticket um, afterwards with Ron Johnson and Evers winning statewide elections, but it just, they didn't have the muster um, to, to really carry him all the way. So look, to me, the reason this tops the Johnson was not because the margin was bigger. It's because Johnson was expected to win. And the party in power in the White House struggles almost every midterm we've ever seen, right? Even with Johnson being upside down the Marquette poll, all year long, last year for the most part. Um, all the issues that he had, he was an incumbent Republican senator and was supposed to be a good Republican year. So he was expected to win. Evers defied history. He is the first Democrat, first candidate for governor to win with his party part in the White House, his Tommy Thompson, the George Bush in the White House. He's the first Democrat ever to win the race for governor while his party's nominee for U.S. Senate lost in Wisconsin. That's ever, Wisconsin history. And he won by 3.4 percentage points. The keys were multiple. The money was important. He and Bev Winkler, the state party chair for Wisconsin Democrats, are a phenomenal fundraising team. Uh, Winkler has those national connections from moveon.org, um, captain a national network. He has a governor's office. It's just easier as a party to raise money when you have the governor's office. And they've been able to say, we're a swing state. We are always going to be important. And Evers was the bulwark against election law changes by Republicans, which would impact 2024. Uh, abortion, if anything came abortion-wise, they have a say. I mean, he is the goalie against these Republican changes that matter, not just for Wisconsin 
what happens here policy-wise, but what happens nationally in the presidential race. It's a phenomenal way to raise money. Evers now is going to have a say in all these things. Republicans thought, we're going to have a Republican governor, we're going to rewrite tax code. Now they have to get Tony Evers on board, they don't want to do that. They've talked about, we're going to have universal school choice. Hmm. Evers now is saying that. I mean, all these things now are changed because of Evers. The question is for Tony Evers, does he want to be a goalie and be on defense for the next four years, or does he want to get something done? Does he want to create a legacy of accomplishments, not just spending federal COVID money and playing defense? Well, that would take building a relationship with the lawmakers you know, that they haven't had before. He talked those year in interviews about medical marijuana, for example. He's proposed in his budget before to legalize marijuana, period. That got pulled out right away. He's going to try and do it again. But is there a path to a compromise on medical marijuana, which is wildly popular with people in Wisconsin, right, and elsewhere? Is that a step? Maybe. Um, but Devin Lemmyhew has said, I don't want to touch marijuana mm -hmm. until the feds take steps on it. So without that, I'm not going there. And I don't think the Senate GP caucus is there on that issue. Robin Voss has said he's open to it because it's an alternative to uh, opioids and those kinds of things. I'm speaking one issue of can you get something done? That's my question. And two, is he going to veto the budget yeah. in the summer? Uh, it's been threatened twice. Will he actually go through with it this summer? If they send him a budget, he can't do it. Now, first off, can they get a deal done, right? That's the big question. Will he actually compromise, work on things, hash out a deal that there can be bipartisan vote for a budget? Not going to hold my breath. <laughs> and if it's sent to him in a way he's not happy with it, would he actually veto it? We've talked before. The question for Eber is always going to be, does it hurt kids? If it hurts kids, he won't do it. But if he can find a way to avoid hurting K-12 education to get what he wants done, maybe. Maybe yeah. that actually happens. And we saw last budget cycle, he even said that. He didn't veto it mm -hmm. uh, because the federal funds would have been at risk. Yep. That's what he thought, and that's why he didn't want to. Um, now it's a different ball game. I mean, almost all of that federal funding is spent. I want to say there's a little bit left. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on if that will work, um, and does he just sign another Republican author tax cut? Um, that was a big issue uh, during the election. Of course, Evers was touting that he signed these tax tax cuts uh, into law. Look how this is benefiting you. In a sense, uh, Republicans saw that as you're taking credit mm -hmm. for what we crafted and you signed. But that is, once again, just something of how much um, and who will benefit and will they find an agreement. We are very... Um, I guess, excited to see what happens, right, JR, in this next budget cycle. All right. Well, that was an exhausting show. I hope you all enjoyed it, uh, who are listening um, and watching us. That is your year in review. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm JR Ross. Have a happy new year. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind, your year in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.